1: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good day, everyone. Welcome to Ghost Chronicles Next Generation. I am Ron Kulik, your host, the gatekeeper of the realm of the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable New England Zone of analysis. And with me today is the person that probably knows more about Martha Benyard than I'll ever know. And he is an author, and he is Mr. Thomas Dresser. Thomas, you there? All right.
2: Thank you for having me on this show. And I hope I can answer some questions and tell you a little bit about our little Island way up in the Northeast corner yeah, yeah. of the country.
1: You know, Thomas, so, you know, we, we talk about Massachusetts and and, we, and everybody knows Boston. They know Lexington Concord. you know, we, even the Cape and, but you know, they don't think much of the, the islands, you know, they, they think it's just a place for the rich and, that, and that's it, uh, you know. Uh, so I, I really like to learn a lot more about it. Now, first of all, uh, how did you get involved in, in writing about, uh, in writing, start, start with writing?
2: Well, I, I've always been interested in writing. And as a kid, I, I started a little newspaper that kept going, every month for seven years until i graduated from high school and then after uh college i took a 30 year break and i taught elementary school for 10 years and then did nursing home administration for 20 years and then i seriously got into writing so i didn't keep a full career going all this time but i've always been interested in it and I moved to Martha's Vineyard in the mid-90s and got into some writing groups here. And I was in two different fiction writing groups. And both of the teachers told me that I didn't really have it to write fiction. Uh, They said my characters were like cardboard stand-ups that would just fall over. (laughs) And one of the teachers said that there was a a true story of a beautiful young woman who was murdered on Martha's Vineyard in 1920. And she said, I should look into that because they never solved the murder. And I looked into it and it turned out that it was an unsolved murder, but it wasn't a beautiful young woman. It was a 72-year-old woman with uh, her hair and rollers and her teeth and a in a cup by her bed, and she was strangled. And the guy who did it got away, and that got me started. So I, I was just interested in the unsolved murder and to find out as much as I could about it. And while I was doing that, the, the teacher of this uh, writing group Got a message from a company down in uh, Charleston, South Carolina, that they were looking for people all over the country, really, to write stories, true stories, about uh, the places that they lived. And I was asked if I wanted to do that. And I connected with this company called The History Press. Oh, yeah. And I told them I was working on this story about an unsolved murder. And that really got their interest, and it gave me a stepping stone to get into the whole topic of what I was interested in. So I went from fiction to nonfiction, and that was in around 2007. And the book Mystery on the Vineyard was published by the History Press in 2008. And since then, I haven't slowed down. I've done about a book a year for the last fifteen years, so that's how I got started
1: yeah I, you know i've written three books, but uh one a year is amazing uh, i mean that's 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 quite the undertaking uh, so yeah isn't it funny though when you brought that story up, you said it like oh, your teacher said about this blonde that was murdered and everything else, but when you did search and found the truth, it was really an old lady, so it's Right. Yeah, it, you have to be careful about, you know, legends, basically. Yeah, that's right. So, um, now it was just the, the book is really
2: two parts. It's about the murder. Oh, I'm sorry, I've got a dog that's gone crazy.
1: Um, <laughs> Ghost dog. Uh,
2: <laughs> let me get in a different room. Um, so, it, it's two parts. It's about the murder itself but it's also about uh, how I solved it. And I was able to find out um, based on newspaper evidence and interviews and just reading the court records and stuff. I was able to find that the guy who did it, you know, he got away, he got away with murder and he was never charged. And that became sort of the, the essence of the story. And it just, you know, it's it's like one of these unsolved murders that you read about on te- or see on television, um, and it's just it it put Martha's Vineyard on the map back in 1940 when it actually happened, and nobody had really done any research since then. So here I was, like 70 years after the crime, and I was able to put pull the evidence together and show that the fellow who had done the murder and then I tracked him down and he had passed away in the mid sixties and, uh, never got charged with it. So yeah. that's, that's sort of the, the story in a nutshell.
1: You know, I, I admire you Thomas for that. Uh, because, you know, nowadays there's so many writers out there, they just go on the internet and they pull information up and, and a lot of it's you know, they don't really do any research. They don't do like the research like you do, you know, delve into the papers and everything else and uh, Mm -hmm. pull it all together. And so I I give you credit for that because it's unfortunately, there's a lot of lazy writers out there that uh, won't do the research.
2: Yeah. Well, to me, the research is the fun part because that's where you really find out what, what happened and why. And it pulls the story together. Um, and you've got the evidence right there. So if anybody questioned me today, I could show them how and where I, I learned of this. So mm-hmm. it's you got to do it. I mean, there's no other way in my book.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, or in uh, any of my books. Yeah, I wrote a uh, article for a newspaper one time on uh, I think it was Witch Hollow or something. And one of the relatives uh, had contacted me and wanted to know where I got my information. And I had done like you did. I had newspaper articles and everything. I said, this is where I got the information here, here, and here. And you know, mm-hmm. it's not like I got it from Wikipedia, you know, <laughs> you actually did right. some work and, and you got some good information. So I give you credit. so in all mm-hmm. you I mean, you've written several books on, 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 um, artists, but so when you re- research these books, I mean, you start off, hearing stories or something right or, or is that how you work or or, or how, how do you work when you when you pick up a book and you know when you decide to write a book on a particular aspect of Martha's venue?
2: well um I've done enough of them so that I sort of have uh a bit of an idea of how to to frame the book and how to put it together it's got to be a topic that uh, resonates. There's, There's got to be depth to it. There's got to be some sort of marketability that people will be interested in it. And I've got to know how I'm going to, to put it together. And I had one book that I knew I was going to attack, as it were, and I kept putting off writing it because I knew it was a good topic but i also knew it was a very difficult one to pull it all together because these these books are um done by the history press they have sort of a formula of how many words they want how many yep. pictures they want what the topic has to be on has to be marketable and i i got into something or i, I put off getting into something on whaling. And whaling was a big economic engine for Martha's Vineyard for 150 years from Mm -hmm. 1750 to 1900. And I just knew that I would be dealing with the economic issues, the social issues, the political issues. And then I learned there were mutinies on board Whaling ships as well, so really? I I found myself going in several different directions on that, and that was a hard one. that That took a long time and a lot of, you know, going to the New Bedford Whaling Museum and reading uh, lots of, of books about the whaling ships that went out, and um, and I I just kept going on that and. Just somehow managed to pull it together, but it still sort of overwhelms me that it was such a challenging topic.
1: Oh sure. So I wasn't aware there were mutinies on whaling ships. Why were there mutinies on there?
2: Well, um, you would be at sea for one to three or four years, going after whales and capturing them to get their oil, which was used as a lighting source, and this is before electricity, before the electric light bulb. And right. so it was a valuable uh, commodity that they were coming up with. But just think of yourself out at sea for literally years at a time. They had to, to stay out there until they could basically fill up their boats with, with barrels of oil. So wow. what happened is they uh, Martha's Vineyard was known for having... Uh, a lot of crew people that were people that were willing to go off to sea, and they would do their job of capturing whales and killing them and and putting the oil, boiling the the fat down to get oil. But when you're away from home for a long time and if there's a troublemaker on board or some people have um, antisocial activities going on, it sort of rises to uh, a mutinous situation. And there were two very um, dramatic uh, mutinies. One was in 1824, where um, they hired a sailor uh, who happened to be from Nantucket. And most of the crew and the captain were from Martha's Vineyard, but they were all on the same ship. And this one fellow from and named Tuckett, Samuel Comstock, wanted to take over a little island off in the Pacific. He thought that he could be a, a king of this island. <laughs> and he got a couple of guys to go along with him. They killed the captain and steered the ship toward this little island. And then this guy, Comstock, went over and took over the island. But then the natives didn't like him, and they killed him. So it was a mutiny against the captain and then a mutiny against the, the guy who created the mutiny. <laughs> so that was, that was one very dramatic scene with blood and guts and the whole thing. And the sailors from that ship who had uh, witnessed the captain being killed and stuff, they sailed away. They came back home to Edgartown, Martha's Vineyard, I, like a year later, and said, you know, the captain was killed by this guy and, and how it all unfolded. And so it was a very um, long, drawn-out situation and very unfortunate. So there's, that was one example, and then there were many others that were, that were dramatic. And, you know, you just got to think that people are isolated. They're away from friends and family, there's no women around. They're out at sea. Um, you know, it it
1: just They yeah, Have waters too, I would imagine.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. So yeah, that's so, that's intriguing though. Yeah, you would never think of it. And, you know, you think about it on pirate ships and uh, military vessels, even, but not so much on commercial ships as things. So right. But so but.
2: that was a tough book to put together. Um, But things like that uh, with the mutiny were, were dramatic. And then, I mean, there were scenes uh, where 30 whale ships got stuck in the ice in the Arctic and they were going to, they were being crushed by the ice. And there were um, this time the captains. some of the captains had their wives and children aboard and they realized that they were, all the ships were going to be crushed and sink and so the captains of these 30 wheel ships got into little lifeboats or rowboats with every, every all the passengers all the crew and they rowed those these boats 75 miles through the ice flows and made it to safety and that was 1200 people that were rescued nobody was no. injured nobody died but the 30 whale ships were sunk, and they were crushed by the ice. And so the financiers, the people who owned the whale ships, who paid for the expedition, they were upset about this, and they made a, a rule that captains could not bring their wives and children on board whale ships anymore. And so that was the end of that little drama, but... To lose thirty whale ships was a pretty uh, serious situation.
1: Yeah, there's a there's a great story like that uh, by Shackleton. I don't know if you're aware of it. You ever hear about the story?
2: Shackleton's? Yes,
1: yes, yes. Um, that was amazing too, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, and um, there was also the one by uh, Philbrick, Nathaniel Philbrick of Nantucket, where a um, where a um, a whale smashed the ship, the main ship, and it sank, and the people had to get off and go on in a lifeboat or a small boat, and they were at sea for like three months in this little boat, three or four people, and I don't want to upset your listeners, but they got into cannibalism, and that was not pleasant, so... But, um, yeah, we can get onto to a, a more cheerful topic if you'd like to.
1: no, that's all right. this is goes Chronicles. we're we're macabre here. that's fine uh, you know, there are similar stories uh, you know even uh you know i am very much involved with with lighthouses and uh you know, I'm on the board of Portsmouth Harbor lighthouses, and I've done so much uh uh fundraising for other lighthouses as well as well as investigating them. And there's one off the coast of Maine that the same thing happened. They shipwrecked on the island and uh, they survived, but they ended up, one of the reason they survived is they ended up eating one of the, uh, yeah. the persons. Uh, sec- of course, in, in, the, in the tale, in the tail it's the cook, of course, but it, it wasn't, it, it was really the carpenter.
2: <laughs> uh, that's, that's, you know, that's, just not a, f- a fun topic to get into no, too
1: far no but it happens you know that's that's yeah great. right it does and so, so um go ahead i mean we had uh you'd speak about ships and everything you know the german u-boats were all across our shores and everything else are there any stories of u-boats off of uh, martha's Vineyard?
2: well um you're jumping to another book which was um, Martha's Vineyard
1: in World War Two. Well, if you want if you're to stay on the whale, whaling, we can. It's, it's, no, no,
2: fine. I'm happy. I've got, I've got fifteen books, so I can keep going. You know, a couple of hours on this <laughs> with no trouble. But I'm re- we I'm did like have you
1: around. <laughs>
2: <laughs> we did have U-boats off Martha's Vineyard in the, uh, 1942, 43. And uh, getting back to the whole research thing, I got in touch with a German um, museum and they were able to to tell me which U-boats were here in which years. And we had 19 U-boats off the vineyard shores in 1942 and into 43. And they were going after fishing boats. They were um, there were rumors that they had landed uh, spies on the vineyard, but we couldn't confirm that. We only said that it was a, a rumor. We, we couldn't absolutely prove it. But we did know from that museum and from uh, photographs that people had taken and um, people, observers on vineyard shores, were able to verify that there were U-boats off offshore. And when you think about it, um, we're just a little island. We didn't have that much that we had to offer. But to have Germans right here in the war, um, that's the closest we came as a country to being invaded during World War II. If you, um, I mean, compared to, to if you don't look at Pearl Harbor, I mean, Pearl Harbor obviously was a, an attack. But um, here, the U-boats were looking like they were just either going to land people or land spies or do something. They didn't get to that point, but they were in the waters right offshore.
1: Mm-hmm. I had I had heard a story uh, where they landed some uh, spies. Actually, I think it was in Long Island or whatever, and they went into New York. They ended up catching one of them actually turned the other one in because uh, they were right of, yeah so there were th- we, there were,
2: yeah. there were three episodes there and I put it in, in the book I think there was one oh, okay. in New York like you mentioned there was one hmm. on Mount Desert Island up in Maine yep. by Bar Harbor and they caught those guys because they were dressed in like suit coats and stuff and Bar Harbor's like a, a really rustic um, like a fishing community, now oh, it's yeah. a tourist center, but it was very rough and tumble, and anyone going around in a suit coat would be, you know, considered definitely out of touch with reality. Um, the suit coat was fine in New York, but um, Maine, New York, and then in Florida, there were guys that were got out of a U-boat into a little raft, and they landed and got caught pretty quickly. So uh, at least those three. So we I, I know also, it was happening.
1: I also heard, uh, I can't remember the details because that's always a, a weakness of mine, um, unless I'm prepared, is, is that uh, you both, uh fired at a ship off the coast of Cape Cod and it actually hit the land. Of the, uh, I don't know if it blew up a truck or something, but uh, I don't know the exact details, but I, I know that... Uh, They actually fired uh, their guns. Yeah. Oh, you're You're right. But
2: but that was the wrong war. That was World War One, and that was the only time we were attacked. I think it was um, 1917, and it it was um, they were firing on either Eastham or Chatham Mm
0: -hmm.
2: on the Cape and there were um there were two boats that that were involved in in chasing the u boat away and that's um that's as much as i remember
1: i that's haven't written good.
2: about that but it yep. did happen
1: you know that's that's pretty good thomas i i give you credit for that cuz that's that's my big weakness i know general details but i don't know the you know, the real details. My son has a photograph, remember, and he can tell you dates and everything else, but unfortunately, I I don't have that. I can get the information mm-hmm. where I need it, but I just know the general information. So I give you credit for that, my friend. You did you did well. well. <laughs> Were there other in- any other incidents in World War II? How did Martha's Vineyard play its part during the war, do you know?
2: Well, um, we had something called the Honeymoon Fleet, which is where the U.S. Navy uh, took 11 different ferry boats from Long Island, from Martha's Vineyard, from Virginia, a couple of other places. And these 11 boats were sent over to England, and two of them were sunk by U-boats on the way over. And uh, the rest of them got to London, got to England, and then they were used as transport ships to to go across the English Channel. Okay. So we had two of our ferry boats taken out of service and served the war that way. And uh, it was just, there's an interesting story of a, a vineyarder who was on board one of those ships and he didn't know it was our ferry boat. He was just being told to get on board and go across. And it was all painted gray and uh, I don't know if it had a It was used later as a hospital ship, so it may have had a Red Cross on it, and there were some things that were different about it. But then when the guy got inside the the ship, he realized it was a ferry boat that he had ridden many, many times. And it was just sort of weird to be across the the water. He didn't know that it was one of our ferry boats until he got on. So that was sort of interesting. Um, We had several episodes of air raid signals and and we had to use blackout curtains and um, you've had all the restrictions of of the war. We had um, people that were uh, plane spotters that were uh, stationed at different high points on the island to look up to see if there were any German planes that were coming across because they were afraid that the Germans were going to bomb us here. Nobody seemed to realize this is before radar. Nobody seemed to realize that the German airplanes did not have a large enough fuel tank to accommodate crossing the Atlantic. There you go. And, so um, I have
1: actually been spotted by the producer out. I've been spotted by the producer saying that we've run out of time, so I'm gonna have to take a break right now. You're listening okay. to Ghost Chronicles Next Generation. My special guest today is Thomas Dresser. We're brought to you by Circles of Wisdom, 286 Merrimack Street, in Massachusetts, the Gallant Messier Family Law Group, 15 High Street, North Andover, Massachusetts, and our very good friends at Ghost Chronicles Radio on Patreon. We'll be right back. we are back. Welcome to Ghost Chronicles, Next Generation. I am Ryan Kolick, and my special guest today is author and historian uh, of Martha's Vineyard, uh, excuse me, Thomas Dresser. Tom's just a laugh. OK. <laughs> so
2: I've got another uh, sea story to, to share with you for just okay. a minute if you're interested. Oh, absolutely. Um, I we've we've talked about whaling and mutinies, and we've talked about World War II U-boats. Mm-hmm. But um, one of the more dramatic stories that I was able to to put into book form was called "Disaster off Martha's Vineyard," and it was a, a steamship that ran aground in the winter of 1884, and there were 130 people on board and a hundred of them drowned. And it was just as horrible an incident as you can imagine. The captain was not paying attention. The person at the wheel, uh, he survived, and he he was asked why he uh, crashed the boat. And he said, well, the lighthouse looked a little closer this time than it should have been. Uh, He was steaming right in the wrong direction, right into a big rock that was right in the just below the surface. He didn't see a buoy or the lookout didn't see a buoy that was supposed to warn them. They crashed onto the rock. The boat started to sink and water came in all over the place. People woke up. It was three o'clock in the morning and it was January and just... Just, and the women and children didn't know how to swim. They were all in night clothes, and they all just drowned. And it was just a, a big disaster. The crew uh, tried to save themselves. They got into lifeboats, and they, those who uh, didn't get into lifeboats, were able to climb a, uh, up on the deck or up onto a mast that the boat had. And so 30 people were saved, but it was just a horrendous scene. So uh, that's a, another tragedy at sea that uh, was a book that I was able to, to put together. I did use uh, some of the Internet to, to get links to newspapers and so forth, yeah. but it was just uh, quite a story.
1: So. Yeah, the- the internet is a good source of information, but it's, it's, it should never be your, your only source of information. You've got to have right. So, so right. Thomas, if someone's interested in your books, where can they find them? Well, um,
2: Thomasdresser is is my website, and I sell all the books that way. Um, it's on they're on local bookstores, but if you're not living on Martha's Vineyard, that's not where you want to get them. So there's a, a secret source that nobody's ever heard of before called Amazon. And <laughs> all the books are on Amazon. So you're welcome to
1: check them out that way. That's funny. Secret source. I like that. <laughs> so, uh, uh, so, you know, this is Ghost Chronicles. So I have to ask you, do you have any ghost stories about Martha's Viniage? Well, I do. Um,
2: and and just to link that last story to um, the ghosts, that there was a couple that drowned on board the, the ship that that sank off the vineyard. And they drowned on January 15th, 1884. And the, the, the wife's, the, the bride's father, woke up in the middle of the night and had this horrible nightmare that the ship they were on was sinking. And he he knew the ship had gone down, he knew his daughter had died and her husband had died in the shipwreck and the news had not been released to the public. So he got a psychic message before um, the actual crisis took place or when wow. the actual crisis took place. So. That was, a, that was sort of an intuitive thing that, um, mm-hmm. that is a true story that um, the guy knew about it, knew something horrible had happened. The ship had gone down and his daughter was dead. So on that cheery note, I went picking up a copy of Ghosts of Martha's Vineyard, which I did a couple of years ago. And I've got 150 pages of ghost stories and Ooh. I can read it cover to cover, or I can just talk a little bit about different stories and
1: different things. What's your favorite story in, on the, in the book?
2: Well, I, um, I like details and I like uh, specific research. And there's a building in Edgartown Town that's the senior center. And on the third floor, there are several rooms that are used for storage, or sometimes they have meetings there. And on the second floor, there's a social worker who uh, has had some rather strange experiences. And on the first floor, there are the seniors who come in to have lunch or to have go to activities or whatever. So you've got three floors in this building. It overlooks Eckertown Harbor. And the woman on the second floor has told me that she has been there like 20 years. She's had three or four experiences where she's been on the third floor and there's a little yellow room there. And she has gone by the doorway and seen a young man working on a project. She thinks it's a a boat that he's working on, like a model boat. And he doesn't talk. He's just very invested in getting this project done and done correctly. He's only been there three or four times in the 20 years. But she works on the floor below. She has heard footsteps upstairs when nobody's there. She's heard uh, furniture moving when nobody's there, and she feels that it's a very uh, creepy situation. Yeah. However, she's uh, college-educated and an intelligent person, and she says that um, she the research she's done on... Uh, psychic or ghosts or whatever, Mm -hmm. she feels that they leave a signal or a image or something, she compared it to a fingerprint. Yeah. And that some people can recognize that fingerprint. And then they can connect or react to the ghost or the, the image of the ghost that's there. So uh, she gave me that story and was very specific about it. And I asked her more details about it at a later time, and she confirmed everything she had told me. She didn't elaborate on it. She just told me specifically what she had heard, what she had seen. And that was her story. And I I say that... Um, all these ghost stories are true from the perspective that the person who experienced them believed them. And so if they believe them, I'm telling their story and I'm not trying to build it up. I'm not trying to knock it down. I'm just sharing their story.
1: Mm-hmm. So
2: that's one story. And there's probably 30 more that are um, some of them are more expressive, some of them are less so, but uh, that's what the book is about. Mm
1: -hmm. Are there any scary ones, uh, Thomas?
2: Um, You know, I I talked to another person who has had several uh, experiences and she never felt scared. She felt that these were lost souls Mm
0: -hmm. and that
2: it was this other person, uh, Karen, was con- convinced that they are lost souls that need help in finding their resolution. She said that ghosts are people who have died tragically and they can't accept the fact that they are dead. And so they they sort of continue existing in a, in a state that's sort of in between life and death. And she compared ghosts to the negative of a photograph. If you think back to years ago when we had Polaroid pictures or negatives, you can't really see the whole thing with a negative, but you know it's there. And that's what she sees as uh, what a ghost is. And she's had 30 years of experiences with ghosts in different buildings She felt their uh, presence when she would go into mostly into historic buildings or buildings Mm -hmm. near the water. She could identify them, but she never felt scared. She felt sort of like she wanted to help them because these people needed some sort of uh, support to get to where they were going. She felt they were on a journey and they needed to be helped along on that journey.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, it makes sense. I mean, they're, they're, the thing is, we don't totally understand. Everybody has their own opinion on ghosts and what they are, and and uh, you know what they're, why they're here, and so forth, and why we see them even. So it's 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 intriguing. But you're you started off with saying that uh, you believe that people who sarum it's it's the truth and and that's to them that's exactly what it is the the ghosts right. the, the paranormal are uh, personal experiences that rather than uh you know i don't know if we'll ever have scientific proof that they exist or not mm-hmm. mm.
2: no it's true i mean if these people are sincere they're they're not trying to make headlines but they have experienced something and they are willing to, sh- some of them are willing to share it. I went to this pub in, also in Edgar Town, also in the harbor, and um, there were two or three waitresses there who had several stories that uh, were just, they were, they were a little bit hard to accept and you have to sort of take it that, Something happened and they witnessed it and then they're sharing it with me. So you've got like a few degrees of separation. But they said that they were working in this pub and uh, and the bartender confirmed this, that there was a shelf with wine glasses on it. And all of a sudden, two or three of the wine glasses just jumped off the shelf and went onto the floor and crashed and broke and people witnessed it and they didn't know how or why that happened. Another incident was that the lights, they had those little white Christmas lights. Mm -hmm. Well, all of a sudden they didn't work or they started to flicker or they stayed on too bright. Something was going on. The fire was in the fireplace was dying out at the end of the evening. And more than once, the fire started up by itself as if somebody wanted the fire to keep going. Around the holidays, there was a Christmas ornament on a wreath that bounced that fell off the wreath, bounced on the floor, and then rolled across the floor and then back. And people said, it's weird. We can't quite explain it, but it happened and more than one of the people there had seen it and they confirmed it and I didn't know what to say. I mean, there I had I heard their stories and I saw where the experience occurred and I couldn't I couldn't disprove it and they were just very sincere in their story. They also had, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Okay. There was a woman there who lived in the hotel and she was in room 308. And that was considered a haunted room because she wasn't real. And occasionally she came down to the pub from her hotel room and Stood by the fireplace and you could see through her because she wasn't human. She was a ghost and she had long, stringy white hair and they nicknamed her Helen. They thought of her as a, uh, a widow of a whaling captain that she was waiting for her husband's ship to come in and she was just sad and standing there by the fireplace and they thought that her presence perhaps was the reason that all these strange things with the lights and the wine glasses and the christmas ornament she could have been the reason that these strange things were happening so that's that's a story that um you know you it just it just fills your imagination with what's going on because none of it could be explained logically
1: reasonably yeah i mean you know people have stories but they don't now they are open to talk about it but i i remember i sat on the harvard pilgrim appeals board for three years with the top echelon of harvard pilgrim and these are all doctors and and the lawyers and administrators and psychologists and everything else and they all knew what I did because I'm a, I'm a paranormal investigator. I don't know if you know that, but, uh, but they, they'd always have their own stories to tell, you know, they, I have to go earlier to tell to the meetings to tell uh, them what I was up to, but they always had their own stories too. So it, mm-hmm. it's, these people had these experiences, uh, you know, what they were, you know, we, we don't really know. It was real to them, which is, you know, the important thing, I guess, uh, you know, it was their experience. Mm-hmm.
2: No, I think you're right. It was real to them. That's key to the to the whole experience, really. And my job in in putting this book together was was to uh, to bring that reality out so that people could could see it for themselves. And because we're a little island. We're, you know, we've got water all around. People think that the water may have be a, a receptive uh, place for ghosts to hang out. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know how much that has to do with it, but, uh, you know, there there are ghosts around in different places. And Newport, Rhode Island is another place that has yeah. a lot of ghosts
1: there. Water has played an important part in... in uh, And the spirituality, uh, there are many towns that will have like north and south cemeteries. And one of the reasons they might have this, not that their towns were that big, is but they might have a a, a stream or a river running through town. And they believe that if someone died and you you took them across the water to bury them in the cemetery across the bridge or, or anything, that the running water would capture their soul. So that's why they had... Two cemeteries, oh. one on each side of the river. So water is an important part in in a lot of uh, spiritual beliefs. Mm-hmm.
2: I never heard that, but that that makes sense. That's yeah. kind of interesting. Wow. Yeah,
1: you, you, you talked about that uh, ship that went awry. right that, that reminds reminds me of you know because here in New England and and all and down the, up and down the East Coast we, we had the. Uh, moon cusses, which would set up false mm-hmm. lights and, and draw ships in to be wrecked and uh they would call moon because on a full moon uh you know the ships could see the shore and so forth and that that's what you know would ruin their plans but they would light a light to pretend it would be the town or or, or a uh, lighthouse or so forth to uh, uh drag, draw the ships in yeah that that's, that's very great. common. yeah
2: the other so, name for moon cussers is pirates.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. These are land-based more than than the thing. Do yeah. you have any pirate stories on the on the ca- on the island? I mean, are there any pirates? We have stories? any
2: what pirates?
1: There any um, pirates in your research?
2: Uh, there were a couple stories that um, I repeat them here, just because they're sort of. Uh, ghostly in their own weird way, yeah, but um, one was uh, there was supposedly hidden treasure out on uh, the little island of Chappaquiddick, which is like right next to Martha's Vineyard. Made
1: famous by Kennedy.
2: Yes, right. That's <laughs> where everybody learned about uh, what was happening here.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, but they, yeah, there was supposedly. Uh, buried treasure, and uh, there was somebody who was who told a story, and this is this is like 200, 300 years ago, mm-hmm. but he told the story of how he was watching this uh, rowboat coming in from a pirate from a ship, and they had a, a, a treasure chest or something, and. The, they uh, there were two guys that carried the treasure chest uh, out of the boat and onto the shore and the captain was with them and he had them dig this hole and then bury the treasure chest and then the captain pulled out his gun and shot the two guys and pushed them into the, the hole where the treasure chest was oh, and nice. covered covered it up. Mm-hmm. And that just, you know, is pretty gruesome and of course there's no proof of any of that but it's it's a great story so nobody found the treasure chest but it's it's just you know it's out there and then there was one other story that uh from this same book of like old old tales of Martha's Vineyard or something that these uh guys were farming in the like 1830s. So they had a horse and a pulling a plow. And as they're going through a field, they started to to turn over the soil. And there were these gold doubloons that started surfacing. And so the, the farmers, the, the guys that were farming the land, they started to collect these doubloons. And it was they figured that it was pirate treasure that somebody had left it there, and for some reason the the horse and and plow were able to to open it up, and and there it was, all this money that was out there, and they never knew who did it. But of course they'd love to say it's Captain Kidd or, you know, one of the big pirate names. That, uh,
1: but there's no proof of that. Yeah, there are so many cool stories so, like that. Um, yeah, you know, we're, believe it or not, we're running close to time, but, uh, you've written so many Ow. books on, on my, you know, you, you, your latest one, I believe is on the Roaring Twenties.
2: Great. I'm sorry. The dog's had it again.
1: <laughs> your latest book so, is on the Roaring Twenties.
2: Yes. Yes. And there's no ghosts in that, but there's some great stories about, um, prohibition and, how fishermen got enticed into going out and picking up bottles of booze and bringing it ashore, and how the Coast Guard tried to stop the rum runners from going after more liquor and stuff. So that, that got very exciting uh, as it, as, the, as the years went by because Prohibition went into effect in 1920, and it lasted 13 years, and it created a whole, a raft of cr- criminals, people who were just trying to make ends meet, but then they got involved in rum running, and then, you know, that was illegal. So it didn't work out well for everybody. But there's some great stories in that book.
1: Did they they have speakeasies in the in the island? They,
2: um, there were stories about yeah you know, that they had uh, speakeasies. They had a place where a, a number of uh, left-leaning, uh, high-end people, Felix Frankfurter and Max Eastman and um, Thomas Hart Benton, they would party up in the town of Chilmark and they would drink all that they would have drinks every day. So we know that they were partying and mm-hmm. getting their alcohol without any problem. So, uh, you know, that's just, that's the way things were in those days that they, they just played the game as it needed to be played.
1: Yeah. And uh, they were, go ahead. Right. No, that's fine. So how did, uh, Martha, but you—I mean, martha has been—you grow from, you know, basically a whaling and rough town to to kind of a a place where we associated with the wealthy people.
2: Well, you can associate with the wealthy people, but there's a missing link between going from whaling to the wealth, in that um, when whaling died out in the late 1800s, there weren't very many wealthy people here and the powers that be realized that there was a, a, another mechanism that could make money and that's tourism. And starting around 1900, they, they advertised and they promoted coming to Martha's vineyard as a, for tourism. And so
1: anyway, I have to end the show now. So, uh, we were, I want to thank okay. you, Thomas, for, for being on the show because we actually run out of time so much the company did a good job. Uh, once again, where can we find more information about you and your books?
2: Okay, thomasdresser.com or my Gmail is thomasdresser at gmail.com.
1: Books oh, are you, at Thomas. Amazon. Thank you so here. much for joining me today. It was fascinating. Uh, you've been listening to Ghost Chronicles Next Generation right here on TojiNet. Brought to you by Circles of Wisdom, 286 Merrimack Street, Methuen, Massachusetts. The Glant and Messier Family Law Group, 15 High Street, North Andover, Massachusetts. And our very good friends on Ghost Chronicles Radio on Patreon. And you too can become a member for a mere three buckaroos a month. And you get access to over 50 exclusive videos and so forth. So, Thomas, once again, thank you very much. Good night and God bless everyone.